Fantastic. I'm usually the person when someone tells me to take a seat, I just keep on going clueless. So I have no judgments. No judgments right now. <laughs> Good morning. Happy New Year to you all. Happy New Year. Yeah. Last time we were together was New Year's Eve. Um, I hope you had a, a grand celebration together. Um, it's not a Christian holiday, but that's okay. It's a great time for us all to celebrate together no matter where, where we stand on things, um, God brings unity through all means. So, We're beginning a new series called Nexus. You see this. I love this artwork that Barbara came up with. I think it's a beautiful image of what we'll be talking about. A nexus point is where things come together. It's a meeting point. It sounds kind of hip and a trendy word. I didn't mean it that way. It just really means this meeting point. In fact, uh, some people have said it sounds like shampoo. That's, don't, uh, take that out of your mind. <laughs> Throw that away. It's, it's just a, a convergence point of sorts where things meet and they converge and their convergence influences their meaning and reshapes it in light of that convergence. The Bible is all about these nexus points. I'm, I'm saying this as if it's a throwaway line. I don't mean it as a throwaway line. I really mean this, that, that however I preach from this day forward, and in including what we've already gone through in Advent, that it will always be with this in mind. So the Bible being about these nexus points, these places where God's space, and the Bible calls it, and we call it as Christians, heaven, God's space. And human space, the Bible calls it, and we call it, and scientists still call it, earth, <laughs> right? Where those intersect. That's what the Bible's all about, the intersection between heaven and earth. It shows up all over and over in the Bible because, well, this intersection between heaven and earth is what it's all about. And, and it's what shows up in the final scene in Scripture, Revelation 21 and they don't have this, the people up here, so don't panic. It's all good. It, don't, it doesn't need to be up on the screen. Just, just hear me out. I saw the holy city. This is the very end of the Bible here. The new Jerusalem, what? Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for, your husband, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Intersection, convergence, the nexus. That's how it ends, the ultimate nexus, heaven and earth brought together. So how does it start? Well, we'll be reading our passage from Genesis 1 today, but Genesis 2 provides kind of a, a glimpse into, into a piece of how it all looked when everything was created, and, and humans in particular. In Genesis 2, God took dust from the ground. In the story, we're not clear. We hear waters covering the dust, so it could have been mud he took, right? This image of a big pile of mud. And he breathed into it his spirit. That word for, for breath is the same as spirit. It's the same as wind in the Bible. All three English words are the same word in Hebrew. And God breathes into this, this cake of mud, and in it, comes life, earth, heaven. This intersection, this nexus is what it's all about. And so for our scripture reading this morning, what will really help us take shape and what we'll explore together is from Genesis 1. And, and really, it's, it's 
the grounding point for all of us as we consider our lives and what they're about, what, what we are for, what we are made for. It's it, beautiful um, statement in our uh, catechism is, you know, we are created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what does that mean scripturally? And this is where it takes shape in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we read, then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let's pray. God, we pray for this word that was just read that it washes over us in ways that perhaps we've not considered before, but really ground it in what you've always told us from the beginning. Ground us in the gospel truth of Jesus Christ, who was the image of God made complete. Ground us in the truth of your spirit breathed into our lungs today to give us life, give us new life. We pray this in your name. Amen. There might be so many questions you have about this passage, like let us make. Theologians and, and folks have considered this for, for many centuries. So what does this all mean? Is there a multitude of gods? We're not going to get into that today. What I'd like to dis- explore is one piece for us that will guide our time together, and it's this. Our bottom line is this. We were made to reflect our creator. Not a scandalous line, right? Many of us would say, like Phil, Amen. And it's important, but there's a trick to this. What does that mean, right? Have you ever seen a child play dress-up? And and typically, what do they do? They go to their their parents, if they don't have any costumes, what do they go to their parents' closet? And they pick out stuff like this, right? And they pick out clothes that's way too big for them and baggy and and loose. And and it's hanging off their clothes as if they've lost 100 pounds in the new fad diet, right? It just looks silly, but it looks real. It's an expression of what they want and who they want to be like their parent. The story tells us today that we are created in the image of God. And what follows is very clear on what that means. To be made in the image of someone is to be like them. To take on a bit of their, their goal, their character, their telos. It's not philosophically like of the same essence, right? We are not God. We're humans. But to be made in the image of God is to be like that one. Whether it's something you do innately without thinking, or in many cases it's unintentional, to be made in the image of God is to be like something else. Well, this book, Genesis, is telling us something about ourselves that is central to who we are as humans, and it does it in a very 
surprising and even scandalous way. You're used to this now, by now with me, right? We talked about magi and how they're not necessarily these sweet characters last week. This week, we're going to explore this idea of what the image of God could mean. I got to be careful. These are scholars. These are theologians. They're not the final word, only God is. But let's explore this today. It's the original audience who would have heard these words read would have been shocked. Let me explain. When the phrase image of God came up in the ancient world, there were a few things that went through someone's mind. But one rose above all. And this is just seen in all of the archaeological evidence of all the literature they they have found as far as this phrase, the image of God. What does it refer to most of all? Think of the powerful and wealthy people in our world. Think of their wealth and their influence. Think of the ability to make things happen by their word. Now imagine all of these people were wrapped into one person with ultimate say over the direction of your tribe, of your people, of who you are, of your life itself. In fact, you live in a a monarchy, a dictatorship, really. This is all your imagination. I'm not saying anything right now for us, but, but just imagine you're in that place. And it's even tyrannical at times. Now imagine that this person, this king, as they call this person, claims that they are the son of God. This is common in the ancient world. The son of God. It, it happened more with really mighty empires where they could really back, back it up, right? But it happened. And they said they were made in what? The image of God. In fact, that's what they were commonly called, the image of God. The king, the image of God. And they were the only one made in the image of God, they told you. And they told everyone around them, they're the only one made in the image of God. Why? Because they're the only reflection of the God and the God's essence and who the God was, whether it was love, sex, money, power, whatever it was, they were the one who showed that essence. And you listened to them because why? They were the image of God. You did what they said. They ruled in power. What else did they do? Well, pretty much universally, they subjugated, enslaved, they killed people. They demonstrated their power by waging war and gaining land. Just you know, you play any one of those. I'm not sure many of you do. I don't really myself. But any video game where you're trying to conquer people and take their land, it's the, it's the story as old as time, right? This is what happens. And they do that also by humiliating their opponents. Why? Because this is how their God acted, they said. This is their God. That's how they go about their business. And since they were made in that image, that's how they ruled. Okay. Praise God you're not there. Really, praise God. These are the stories you read in the ancient literature. It's not not fun. You're back here today. That's good. We're not imagining anymore this, but this was the reality that those peoples lived. The phrase image of God meant the king. And so... Be ready. Here we go. This is where it gets fun. The passage of Scripture, this passage, when it was written, when it was read out loud, just imagine, only the king is the image of God. And you know that. Everyone knows that. Everyone 
understands that deep in their soul. And then this passage was written and read and spoken out loud. It made a very dangerous and first-of-its-kind statement to the entire world. It didn't say the king was the image of God. It didn't just say a particular ethnicity was the image of God, right? No, not just the Hebrew people. Mm -mm. All people are made in the image of God. For those of us, you know, in a democracy, let's say, this doesn't feel that big, maybe. We're like, oh, yeah, we're used to that. Well, that is not the world they lived in. This statement is huge in its implication. And if we ignore it, if we begin to lose sight of this statement, what ends up happening is catastrophic for our relationships with one another. Because the vision that God puts forward that we are all the image of God shapes who we are dramatically. It's radical. It's subversive, really. Many scholars and theologians, we don't usually say this from the pulpit because using the word subversive is, is dangerous. It's not subversive to America. It's not subversive to any nation today. It was subversive in its time to the places and the people and the powers that ruled. It was subversive to oppression and violence that they had that was rampant in the ancient world. To take whatever you wanted. Consider the story of David and Bathsheba. Some of you may not know this story. David, King David, one of the greatest kings in Israelite history, sees a woman bathing on a roof, because that's what they did. This is how it worked back then. And she sees him, and his heart, as some men would have in that moment, are inflamed, and he sees her and says, I want her. And he goes and sends his men to take her, brings her back. She's married. Her husband's at war. He gets her pregnant. Brings the husband back, tries to kill him. Tries, actually tries to make the two of them seem as though they're making the baby. Doesn't work. Then he does kill him on the front lines. That story, you're like, oh, how awful. Guess what? That is innocent compared to other kings. And the Bible is saying, we are all made in the image of God. Bathsheba included. Her husband included. Not just the king. The king doesn't do what the king wants. That is revolutionary. And if we lose this, not just, I'm not talking politics here, friends. If we as people lose this, it gets tricky. This is the foundation of our understanding of life and God. The Bible will go on to extol the value of leadership. It does. It's not saying leaders don't matter. It's not saying authority doesn't matter. It does. It's very important. And how we also learn how to submit mutually to one another. All of these things are very important. But it won't turn a leader into another class of human. Moses, Moses is a prophet, yes, but Moses is a human in the image of God. Right? These, these great leaders that we know, Abraham, right? Ah, David, they're human, made in the image of God. This is world-altering information. Information is great, but if you want to get the deep wisdom of God, that's just around the corner. The ancient kings, they would dominate. 
They would take what they wanted because they claimed to be in the image of God. But the image of God in Scripture is different. This God, this Yahweh God, this God as we read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what does that God do? Well, if you read the story, that God doesn't dominate. Mm -mm. We would say his essence could. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He could do whatever he wants. But he doesn't dominate. This God doesn't take. This God gives. This God doesn't destroy. This God creates. This God doesn't hoard power. This God gives power. What's the image of God? God says, I'm going to make you in the image of God. What does that mean? I want you to rule. Rule? Wait, who rules here? You say you, you rule or do I rule? No, you, no, no, God rules, but I'm going to give you some of this. Oh, and God can take it back really quick, too. <laughs> that makes sense. That happens all the time. But we're given that ability because God doesn't hoard power for himself. God shares it abundantly. The image of God in Scripture is far different than the cultures of this ancient world. And I, I, I dare to say, we can still see it spring up today, and our human hearts can go there quite easily with any powerful person claiming to be that image of God, whether or not they use the words. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? God says it. To be made in the image of God is to rule. Now some, this is, this is always difficult, and this is just an inter- interpretation. Christian history has a lot of interpretations of this passage, so I don't claim to be the only, but I believe that this is really bringing us to a deeper understanding of the wisdom of God. See, the word rule for some means do whatever I want with whatever I have. It means to exploit the gifts that I have if I have to. Why? Because they're mine. I do what I want with whatever I want as long as it's legally mine. But what is God? The all-powerful, supreme being in the universe do? Does that God flex muscle? Well, God creates, sure. But does that God dominate and subjugate and intimidate? No. In fact, that God is very odd in the ancient world, and if you really think about it, odd today. We want God to be that really strong buff. I've seen pictures of, you know, Jesus like that, right? With the just big muscles, ah, like this. I don't know if you've seen this. You can Google it. It's, it's mind-blowing. Um, and the idea of our God and, and our Savior like that, right? Just, ah, like this. That's not the image we get in the story. Old Testament biblical scholar Richard Middleton examines the image of God closely in his book, The Liberating Image. It's not an easy read. If you want to pick it up, have fun. There's a lot of scholarly stuff in there, a lot of footnotes to go through, but it's a great book. He writes this, the sort of power or rule that humans are to exercise in the Bible is generous, loving power. It is power used to nurture enhance and empower others non-coercively for their benefit not for the self-aggrandizement of the one exercising power 
from our passage by watching God in the act of creation. We can reflect on God now and God's wisdom by these four acts. And these four acts will kind of show us. So, so how do we reflect our creator? The first act is to create. To create. Many things have been said about humans. What? That we are... Uh, we're, we're earth beings, right? We're made, we're dust, and to dust we shall return. Some people say we're sexual beings and things. I believe those are all great, important, true things. But we are creative beings. We create. Look at the things we've created. I'm reading a sermon off of this thing. <laughs> we are made to be creative beings. And I'm not talking about art or even technology. It's whatever ways God has gifted you. Oftentimes we've been burned through our creations. Sometimes we've doubted. And maybe people have said things to us that have hurt us and made us shy away from creating. And so we end up what? Consuming, 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 consuming. And God's made us to create. Yesterday, standing here, I spoke to the life of Jean Christensen, a woman I'd never met, but a woman who created, created so many good gifts for her community, created nonprofits so much uh, in this community, so much that her son said, I wonder what's, which nonprofit she's established in heaven already. <laughs> this is not, this is, this is the life of an exemplary person, Yes. But it is a witness and an encouragement to do the same in whatever big or little ways there are. Create, create, create. Do you want to connect to the divine power and the divine image? Do you want to know the power of God as God has gifted you? Then create. The second act is something that I think our local placentia community, especially with its Orange Grove past would know. It's to cultivate. To cultivate. God doesn't just make things. God doesn't just say, let there be light. God adds things, right? To the light and the land and the seas. God cultivates these great creations that he's brought into being. In the creation story, God ultimately cultivates something very important that we'll be talking about next week. God cultivates a garden. God also splits the first human into two, making humanity that much better. God cultivates. Creation is one thing, but what if we spent time cultivating things that were already created? Maybe not even our own thing, right? Maybe not even the thing that we created, but we could cultivate something. What a great gift that would be to build upon something else and to enjoy the thing that was and maybe even to change it in a way. It's exciting. Second act is to cultivate. Okay. The third act is where the rubber meets the road, though. The third act is hard. The third act, I wish it started with the letter C, but it doesn't. The third act is hand it over. Hand it over. You've created this thing. You've cultivated this thing. 
feels like a child to you. So important. Now hand it over. Hand it over to someone new. Someone who may not be like you. Who might do different things than you. This is part of our faith though, friends. This is not an unfortunate accident of who we are. This is the way it works when it's running right. Fuller Seminary calls this um, something in their study of, of church and churches that thrive. They call this keychain leadership. Keychain leadership, what does that mean? Well, they draw upon the metaphor of keys. And I wish I had my keys. I don't have them with me because I don't like big bulgy pockets. But keys, and you have the keys to everything important to you, right? Keys to your home, your car, your office. And those keys are very important to you because they symbolize parts of the world that God's given to you and how you are trying to cherish them and make sure they're, 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 they do well. They also symbolize relationships. Well, churches that thrive, not just churches, but many places, but absolutely churches, are places where people take the keys, either copy them, right, or take them and hand them off to someone else. Those are the places that thrive. Now, the trick of it is you can't just pawn it off on someone else, right? You can't just throw it at them and run away because you don't want it anymore. It's for people who get interested. And trust me, oftentimes there are young people who are really interested, right? Really interested in things that we've done. They're just fascinated. But it's hard to give them the keys, right? They get their license. Do you give them the keys to the car, right? They're now starting to come home at different hours. You give them the keys to the home? Well, yes, but what are they going to do with it? What if they lose it, (laughs) right? What about the keys to the office? Ooh, I've been at churches where they guard that tightly. <laughs> Things like that. Keychain leadership, passing on the keys to someone else and being ready for what happens. Because here's the fourth part. The fourth part is the hardest. It's the hardest of all. But it could be the most fun. The fourth act is to cheer them on. So you've created, you've cultivated, you've handed it over, and now I've handed it over, and now I nitpick everything this person does. <laughs> right? Because you're not doing it the way I want to do it. <gasps> the fourth part, God even lets at this human, Adam, you name the animals. What? What if these names are weird? <laughs> Oh, the human gets to name the animals. The human works the ground. What if the human doesn't know what they're doing to grow the squash and the cucumber and the fig tree? No, no, you do it. Right? And then that God cheers us on. Now, it's dangerous because we see in the very next chapter what happens. This human pair, Adam and Eve, they fail miserably. That's gonna, that does happen. I'm not saying it'll always happen, but it will. But what does that God do? Does that God yell at them? In fact, if you read the story, and we will later, that God never curses the humans. No, the serpent and the land get cursed. The humans don't. But they experience repercussions from their actions. They experience deep repercussions from what happens. And then God still empowers them more 
and cheers them on. And that's what our goal is. Create, cultivate, hand it over, cheer them on with no strings attached, right? It's the gospel of grace. It's God's great mercy. It's what we've experienced in our hearts and our souls. And for those of us who said yes to Jesus, it's, it, that's our Lord. And yet, it's our challenge today. And what a great challenge in this day and age when things have changed so drastically. When so much new is, is needed to be created and cultivated. And, and those things that we've cherished, they do need to be handed over with no strings attached. And we need to cheer people on, the next people who take them on. Because this is how we reflect our creator. This is how we image God. Richard Middleton, in the end of his book, ends with the only proper reflection, and I'll end with this today. In the end, the liberating character of the image of God is grounded in the nature of God. One who calls the world into being as an act of generosity. This means that we cannot artificially separate our vision of God's redemptive love from an understanding of God's creative power. A careful reading of Genesis 1 through 2 thus converges on John 3.16. What does that say? God so loved the world that he took? God so loved the world that he gave. This is our challenge today. To love something so much to give. And then to cheer on the next person. Actively. Engagedly. Lovingly. Graciously. Because we were made to reflect our creator. Amen. Amen.